Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, we mentioned last time that people may criticize our tradition because they may say we don't have a high view of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something where I certainly see the force of it in the sense that we only literally have one Lord's Day in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But when people bring forth this criticism, or if you ever hear this criticism come against us, you have to remind them how we view the Holy Spirit. Uh, we certainly view the Holy Spirit as divine, and, and we know that he is a third person in the Trinity, but we also see the Holy Spirit as working in the church. Uh, so literally, there might be only one Lord's Day that addresses the Holy Spirit, but in terms of our catechism, we have a very high view of the Holy Spirit in terms of the church. And so as we consider the nature of the church and the communion we have in Christ, we have to understand that that communion comes about in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so for us as Reformed people, if somebody ever presents this criticism to you in our tradition, because we don't speak in tongues or we don't uh, engage in prophecy or what other traditions do, Remind the individual of passages like 1 Corinthians 15.45. Christ is raised, he becomes a life-giving spirit. So Christ's work and the Spirit's work are intricately tied together. So for us to have Christ means we have the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about the doctrine of the church, as the Catechism is going into this doctrine now, we're assuming the Holy Spirit's work in the context of the church. So again, it's not that we have a low view of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're dealing with the application of Christ's redemption. Dealing with the application of Christ's redemption is the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing this as part of the Spirit's work as we join together and have this vision in Revelation. And so in, in terms of our identity and who we are, one of the struggles we may realistically have. I think one of the things, I wouldn't say the main thing, but one of the things I think Hebrews is addressing is where we can doubt the sufficiency and power of Christ. Where we might wonder, why continue to persevere? What's the point? Is Christ really going to bring us to the end? Is there really an eternal rest? And I think this is where the book or the letter of Revelation or the vision of Revelation is so beautiful. Because here we have this picture of heaven itself and what's going on in heaven. And hopefully as we uh, briefly go through uh, this chapter, there's so much more we can bring out in terms of revelation, but just trying to stick to this, just the beauty of understanding where we are found today, what's transpiring in heaven, and how we participate in that in the church is something that I want to explore and bring out. And so as we consider this, I want to follow the logic of this Lord's Day dealing with the question and answers. Again, 
Remember, we're assuming the application of Christ's work, the work of the Holy Spirit. So we think of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, the work of the Holy Spirit in the saints, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual. Now, these are not mutually exclusive things, as I think our catechism does a great job of laying out to us. But nevertheless, we don't just want to say the church, or we don't just want to say the saints. We want to say also that we're part of this, that we claim it. We identify with this, with this uh, claim that these blessings are my blessings, not just the saints' blessings, not just the church's blessings, but my blessings. So let's begin with the church. Answer 54 teaches us that the church is not comprised of one group. Notice that it says, out of the entire human race. And so the point is the church is made up of an international people. So again, somebody comes in and says a true church is a Jewish church or a Hebrew church. You say, well, that's not what we read in Scripture. That's not what we find in Revelation. That's not what we're taught. Uh, one of the beauties of Pentecost, again, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, is that the gospel is being presented in a variety of languages. That it's an international gospel going out to an international people. And so this is confirming what the catechism's teaching or summarizing. Going on then, the church is also protected by Christ. That he protects and preserves a community chosen for eternal life. Uh, this is something else in our culture uh, that we battle against. And I wouldn't say it's just unique to us, but it's probably more pronounced and more accepted than it has been in church history. But then, you know, the notion of the Bible or me, uh, my belief, my Christ, my Jesus, uh, where we get so individualized that we don't understand the notion of, no, I'm part of a body. I'm part of a community. Uh, right now in history, but also we think about the privilege of being joined to the community of saints, uh, that we're going to be joined together in heaven as a church, singing praises, not only in terms of who we have known in this life, but we think of the saints throughout the ages, not only the New Testament, but even the Old Testament, and all those saints joined together. What a marvelous and, and big picture of the reality of what God has done in calling a communal people uh, to be set apart unto him, to praise him. And that's what the catechism is getting at. And we're also united by true faith. I am and always will be a living member. I, I love that language in the catechism. Because again, if somebody says, you guys don't believe in the Holy Spirit, this is Holy Spirit language. That we are those who are living in Christ right now. We are living in Christ because the Spirit has given us this life. And so for us, we can't say you have Christ and then maybe you get the Spirit. If you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Uh, what a wonderful thing that God dwells within us, applies the distinct blessings of Christ, and they are in fact our blessings. God dwells within us, calling us not only individuals, but also as a community of saints, joining together, sharing in these blessings. So now when we turn to Revelation, we consider at least Revelation 5 in terms of, of the church. Prior to this, there is a warning that's given to the churches. Um, if you read in, in chapter 2 where you have the seven churches that are given there, if you take these churches and you put them on a map, uh, they form a circle. 
seven being the number of completion. And so these churches are dealing with uh, struggles that we as a church can fall into. So again, it's, it's a communal mindset, a communal understanding of where churches can be distracted. So very briefly, just walking through these. Uh, Ephesus, they're enduring patiently, but they've lost their first love. In other words, they, they seem to, to really endure and persevere in Christ, but they're not doing it because they have their first love in Christ, and so they're exhorted to do so. We have Smyrna, where they're <clears throat> not warned, but they're actually encouraged. Face persecution, have hardships, and he's saying continue to persevere. Pergamum, uh, they dwell in the midst of Satan's throne. They've held up well, but they're starting to engage in immorality. Uh, and so as they engage in immorality and they're setting the precedent of Balaam and basically pursuing false gods as Balaam came into Israel, tricked Israel to fall into idolatry and adultery and pursue false gods, that's where this church is going. So it's, again, understanding how a church can slide uh, into this distraction of losing sight of their true God that they can start incorporating false worship and false things uh, into who they are, uh, that they no longer lose sight or gain sight of who they truly are as Christ's church. Thyatira, um, again, show fruits of the faith, but they hold to the teachings of Jezebel. Uh, basically, again, there's a lot of immorality going on, looking to other things in the Lord. But notice that they're not cut off. They're exhorted uh, to repent of their sin. Sardis, they have a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. And so again, it's, it's kind of like what we heard in Hebrews of understanding that as a church, we, we have to love Christ. We have to love the gospel. Uh, these things are, are being called to our attention. Philadelphia, uh, they are those who have little power, but yet they've kept the word. Uh, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Uh, or the synagogue of Satan will bow before them. And so the, the call is for them to stay the course, keep following the Lord, keep pursuing his gospel, uh, stay pure, in other words. Laodicea, uh, they, have a <clears throat> they are indifferent to the plan of God. Uh, they're not really hot or cold. They just sort of exist. And so again, it's reminding us and exhorting us to uh, have that desire and want to live and conform to the Lord giving ourselves over to the Lord and who he is. And so when we understand these concerns and these brief addresses to the church, there's that communal mindset that's set there in Revelation. It's not we're just Christians unto ourselves, but we are part of a church, part of a community, and we are to be tuned in to the purpose of God. Now we, we have this assurance prior to this in Revelation 4 verse 11. This is an important context here because in Revelation 4, verse 11, uh, there's the assurance that the Lord is the one who is worthy of all power and glory, created all things. He's sovereign. And I say that this is important because when we turn to chapter 5, in verse 4, we have sort of an interruption or a contradiction to Revelation 4, verse 11. And the contradiction is that John is weeping loudly. Implication, out of control. So John's here in heaven having this vision, seeing the angels praise God, and he's weeping. One might wonder, well, why is he weeping? Well, he's weeping because he's just heard in verse 3 
that no one's worthy to open the scroll. And they say, well, it's just a scroll. What's the big deal? You know, it's a scroll, has some writings, you unravel it. Why the drama? Well, John's not out of line in terms of this drama. Because for Revelation 4, verse 11 to be true, the scroll has to be opened. Because we find in chapter 6, the meaning of the scroll, the scroll is laying out the decrees of God. So what this would mean simply in our context is that we could read the, the words of Moses and the words of the prophets, and then all of a sudden have someone bring revelation with credibility that God doesn't have the authority to bring about that prophetic promise. Do you understand how tragic that is? Here you have your hope in Christ, the coming Redeemer, and then you hear, oh, by the way, God's too weak to bring about this promise. So that's why John is weeping. Because John is saying, my goodness, this is Christ, this is God, this is a, the one who rules over all things, and no one is worthy to open the scroll. It means God's not powerful, God's not sovereign, God cannot bring about his redemptive purpose and plan. This is why he's weeping. But we find that John is not one who is a continue to weep. Because we, we have here in this vision as it continues... Then we have the assurance that he's not to weep because we know that the one from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is the one who's able to open us. In other words, Christ. But we have this other thing that underscores that the communal nature of the church and, and drawing us together with the Old Testament saints. We skip down to verse 8, the 24 elders. Now in terms of these elders... They're most likely angels who are seated on the throne as elders. And the reason we say that is because we have the angels praising God. The humans we see in heaven are those under the altar waiting for glorification. And we have John who's being led, led around by an angel who, actually, who has a, a human form as he bows down thinking that the angel is Christ and he's rebuked for, for worshiping him. So most likely these, these elders seated upon the throne are uh, angels that are seated here in heaven. But the description of these angels is, is something that really should captivate us rather than getting into whether these are humans or whether these are angels. It really doesn't matter because they're capturing something. They're, they're, they're recalling something for us. And we find what these angels are doing. That We find that he has taken the scroll, that he's uh, opening the scroll, and the, the elders fall down, they worship him. They're using the golden bulls, they're, they're, they have this incense, a prayer of the saints are coming up, but then we have the musical instruments where they're singing praises to God. And this is important because it calls to our attention what we have as a precedent in Scripture. First Chronicles 25, uh, verses 1 through 8, where we have the elders who, who have a full-time job that David has designated uh, to basically sing praises to God in the temple. That's their job. And so there we have 288 um, elders that do this. Here we have 24. So people will say, well, how is this the exact correlation? Well, think about what's the significance of the number 24. Uh, we have 12 tribes of Israel and ideally 12 apostles. So the 24 is calling to our attention the unification of the church, isn't it? 
The unification, the 12 tribes of Israel, the complete number of Israel that God has chosen, and we have the ideal number of the Gentiles as represented by the apostles. And so as these angels are in heaven singing praises to God, we find that this is a rather beautiful thing. Because when we understand the angel interaction and uh, speaking to John, uh, laying out to him the one that's not able to open the scroll, we think about the angels praising God. Think about the implications of that as we have a precedent of humans in the temple. What is more, we think about what Peter says where he encourages the church, the church, to understand that there's great things that they hear that even the angels long to look. So 1 Peter 1 verse 12 can have an implication that as a church is called to worship on this earth, there are actually angels looking in, listening to the gospel by the implication of Peter. And so when we have this vision, we think of the, the elders singing praises in the temple, the angels singing praises in heaven, we have this overlap. I think so often as Westerners, we, we miss the spiritual dimension of our worship, ironically. Certainly, I hope we see God being present, but we should see ourselves sort of as Hebrews presented as us assembled on Mount Zion. As we come together to worship, reorienting our mindset, seeing ourselves singing praises with the angels of heaven and being aligned with that heavenly army. I mean, what a beautiful picture here of seeing us as a communal people joined together singing praises with the angels of heaven and ultimately seeing this as our, our destiny. I mean, this is where we are going for eternity to be part of the heavenly army to sing praises to the living God as a community of saints with the Israelites or the Old Testament saints, New Testament saints coming together with the angels of heaven praising God. And so if individuals say, I don't really want the church or the notion of a church, you want to look at them and say, do you really understand what you're saying there? I mean, certainly the church in this age has its mars, it's, it's had its marks, it's got its bruises, uh, there's, there's things we can certainly be ashamed of uh, in terms of church history that have happened. But those aren't the things that should define the church. We should really want the church to be defined by what's being described here. We are a people joined together from every tribe, every nation that has been redeemed to sing praises to the living God. Ultimately, as our catechism, I love it when, when it talks about the Lord's Prayer and, and thy will be done. I, I love how he uses the language that we would do the will of God as willingly as the angels in heaven. I mean, ultimately, it's being aligned in that heavenly purpose that as the angels want to do the will of God, so we want to conform to that, uh, not only individually, uh, but as a community. And so in terms of Revelation 5, we have to see the church as a community. Beyond this age, beyond this world, uh, beyond our time and history. And we need to see ourselves as joined uh, with the heavenly army, with angels longing to peer into these things, being, being in, in a sense part of this worship as Peter seems uh, to imply in the opening of his letter. But going on then, the catechism reminds us that it's not just being part of a church theoretically, 
but that there's actually an identity of saints that we all share in Christ. It's important to understand that as a church, certainly we, we see that in the opening of Revelation. But as saints, that this means we're set apart as the holy ones of God. And that's really what it means as sainthood. We're set apart as the holy ones of God. And as we're set apart as the holy ones of God, we have to understand this calling. And so the Catechism, I think, does a wonderful job calling attention to the body of Christ, anything of Romans 12 or, or other passages along those lines. But how we use our gifts of encouragement of one another. How do we encourage one another? Uh, how do we use our words in a positive way? Probably what we've said to our children on more than one occasion. Uh, going on, that we do this readily and joyfully. And, and you think about that in the service and enjoyment of our Lord. Going on, it's a call for us, uh, uh, not for us to turn into ourselves, but to see us consciously redeemed unto the Lord. I mean, we've talked about redemption. We've been purchased out of slavery. We've been purchased to life. We need to consciously see ourselves as redeemed unto life, meditate on that, think about that concept. What does it mean that I'm redeemed unto the Lord? How do I live more consistently as one who has been redeemed, purchased by Christ? But now we, we go back to Revelation 5. And we deal with who Christ is and what he has done. And we go back to the, the tension of weeping, where John's crying. And, and crying almost uncontrollably. And I skipped over the identities of Christ. But this is where the angel tells John, stop weeping. In other words, stop being a crybaby. This is nuts. Knock it off. Because we have one from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. We have the one who's of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So these names are important. Because the lion from the tribe of Judah recalls for us, if you remember, Genesis 49, 8 through 12. This is Jacob on his deathbed. And, and this has to be inspired because if you know the story of Jacob, he would give this blessing either to Joseph, and if Joseph isn't there to receive it, he'd give it to Benjamin, son of my right hand. Joseph may add again, Benjamin, son of my right hand. These, these are his favored children. But instead, he gives it to Judah. And Judah's not really his favorite child at all. And as he gives this blessing, he gives this promise that Judah's going to be like a mighty lion. And so this lion from the tribe of Judah is the one who's going to be so mighty that even when this lion lays down after a meal, you know, it presents it really as a Thanksgiving feast, that he has a great meal, and you know how you go in that Thanksgiving coma after having lunch, and, and, and you just go to sleep, and it's the best sleep of your life. That's the, the depth of the sleep that the lion of Judah has. And so as he has this, this deep sleep, you would think that another animal would come around, steal his food, uh, and, and go away. But this lion is so fierce that even in this coma-like state, no animal is stupid enough to come around this lion. They're going to tiptoe around him whether he's asleep or awake because he's terrifying. And so that's the picture that's presented here. But then there's also the, the promise that the scepter uh, will come to Shiloh, which literally means come to him or to the one. And as the scepter comes to the one, it will not depart. 
so the implication of this is going to be between their loins until the scepter comes to the one. So there's going to be a genealogy, a continuation of the tribe of Judah. Uh, this is why it's so important in the wars of Israel it, when, when you read through scripture and you have the king captured. It's intended to make you say, oh my goodness, what about the promises of God? Judah is supposed to bring about the Messiah. And so there's intended to be drama and tension in the story. Here in Revelation 5, you have the angel saying to John, are you not familiar with history, all the things that have happened in Israel? And yet, the lion from Judah is the one who is able to open the scroll. In other words, the Lord, the, the, the king, has come and has conquered and has proven his worthiness to unravel the scroll and work out the plan of God to secure his saints. And so that's the first part of this, the first recollection, the strength, the might of this king. He, he's strong, he's mighty, he's one who holds the scepter and will never let it go, and no one will take it from him. But then there's a weakness. The shoot from Jesse, or the, the root of David, as it says. This is recalling for us Isaiah 11.1. 1. And that's part of the tension of what has happened to the line of Judah. It's been cut off. The stump, it's there. You look at the stump initially and you think it's all over. The promises of God have fallen flat and you can weep with John. But you see the shoot. You see the root coming out of the stump. And so it's tying together the reality of who Christ is. The one who is a weak one, uh, the one who has humbled himself, the one who has been cut off, and also the one who emerges as a mighty lion, the, the triumphant one. And so this is why the angel is saying to John, knock it off. You, there's no reason for you to weep because the Lord is here. He has conquered. He has triumphed. And he's the one who can open the scroll. He's the one who has proven his worthiness to bring about the promises of God. And so we might say, well, then why does this matter? Well, because here, if the Lion of Judah is not able to accomplish his purpose, well, then we may as well go home. If God is not able to bring about his redemptive purpose, he has failed. End of story. And the assurance is he has been successful. But notice that as we go on, there's an identity that we have here in terms of who we are. He takes the scroll, he ransoms his people, and we find then if you skip down to verse 10, where it's from every nation, every tribe, but then verse 10, he has made them a kingdom of priests. This is a promise that Moses has made to Israel in Exodus 19.6. You do these things, you'll become a kingdom of priests. Uh, Peter recalls this where he says, you are a kingdom of priests, you are a holy nation. But this identity <coughs> of what Christ has done is that he has actually made us a kingdom of priests. He has secured us in this place. And so the, the reality of what's going on here is not only Exodus 19, but when you read the essence of this praise in verses 9 and 10, this recalls for us also, say, Daniel 7:14, where the people praise him. And as they praise him, there are people identified as the saints of the Most High. And so this identity of, of sainthood is one of the things that uh, was groundbreaking in terms of the Reformation. That you didn't have to go to a priest in the church or to a saint 
to come into the presence of God. All of us are identified as priests. All of us are identified as saints. It's not after doing a certain amount of good works where the church pronounces sainthood. It's coming from Daniel's, coming from Revelation, coming from Peter, uh, where we look at this promise. It's the reality that we are those who are priests, set apart unto the Lord, called as his redeemed, called as a sanctified people, set apart and called to continually uh, sanctify our lives and, and live as living sacrifices unto him. This is a rich promise. This is a praise of the new song. Some of the praises we can sing to God. We're not praising our works, not praising our competence, but we're praising the Lord because he has brought about his redemptive promise and securing not only his church, but securing his saints, making it so there are truly a people who are set apart as holy, uh, set apart unto him. But going on then, sainthood already captures a notion of individual, but the catechism narrows it down even more. And understanding it's not just me as a member of a church, it's not just me called as a saint, which is a high and, and wonderful declaration. But the Catechism wants us to understand that with the work of the Spirit, applying the blessings of Christ, there's even more here. And it's an understanding, and this is what I like about the Heidelberg a lot, is that is God will not remember my sin. So notice it's not just sin in general, which is a true statement. But as we read this, it's intended for us to meditate on this and say, my sin for the sake of Christ, the things that I have done. Why do I fight the good fight? Well, I fight the good fight because the Lord has overcome my sin. He has taken away my sin in his sight. And so I continue to struggle and press forward because I know my sin is taken away. And I know that as I conform to the Lord, I taste the goodness and sweetness of my God more and more as I conform unto him. It's something we have to remember in sanctification. Yes, it's painful, it's humbling, but yet at the same time we have the benefit that we're actually conforming to Christ and tasting the goodness of his redemptive promise. But secondly, I'm also reminded for the sake of Christ. God is the one who grants me the righteousness of Christ. So it's not just the church, not just saints, but me. I share in these blessings. They are my blessings for the sake of Christ. And so now we turn back to Revelation. We look back at Revelation 5. And this is where we start tying it all together. We think about John weeping, having the assurance the Lord will prevail. John witnessing the angels uh, bowing down, praising God, having this recollection back to the temple. But here we see the true temple in heaven itself uh, joined together. But we have also this promise of us being a kingdom of priests. We say, but, but how does this transpire? Well, when we notice here, there's this picture not only of uh, Christ being the Lion of Judah and uh, the shoot uh, or the root of David, we have also in verse 6, we have the throne, we have the four living creatures, and then there's a lamb standing. Now this is a rather strange picture, isn't it? Because when we think about a mighty warrior, I, I can get behind the Lion of Judah. Like, that's cool. I could follow him into war. I know he's strong. I know he's mighty. 
If the Lord takes a lamb and says, follow him into war, I'm going, I, I don't know if I want to follow that thing into war. They're kind of dumb and, and they're not very strong and they're not very tough. But that's the intention. That Christ embodies the humility of this and the glory of it. Because as he tells us about the lamb, the lamb slain, and is slain for a purpose of taking away my sin. But if you notice... This lamb is not just any ordinary lamb. So it calls our attention he's slain. You can say, well, that doesn't surprise me. It's a lamb. I mean, this, these aren't known as mighty animals that are going to rise up and be victorious over a whole lot of, of creatures. They're kind of at the bottom of the food chain. But as we notice, he has seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits. So now we have this picture of this lamb that is, this is not an ordinary lamb. So in a closer inspection, we realize, okay, this is the lamb of God that's slain. But these seven horns communicate perfect might, perfect power. And so when, when we might see the lamb or the lion, and if we're given this choice, these are two things that converge together, implying the same thing. Yes, it's a lamb that is slain, but it's also a lamb that's able to fight on behalf of its people. The plan of God was not accidental. Christ dying on the cross was, was not plan B. This was the intention. He was slain, but he was slain to show the strength of God. The seven spirits is just dealing with like this, the completeness of God, the completeness of his power, uh, and it's God who's the one who has sent us out along the earth. You can find this sort of language or these sorts of things or symbols going on in Daniel as we've covered. And so the intention then is that as the lamb is slain, the lion of Judah, and as John looks upon this, he recognizes what's all going on. He's putting it together. That the slain lamb is one that is slain to take away my sin, your sin, to secure not only from all the nations, in other words, that, that there's a quota, but there's a specific people from all the nations. Uh, it's specific individuals that he has come to secure. He knows their names, as in Revelation we find the books opened in the book of life. And so it's not a hypothetical number. And so this is where the rubber meets the road, that the church is comprised of individuals who have been redeemed in Christ. Their sins have been taken away. They're now called the priestly saints of Christ, and they gather together in communion worshiping and praising the living God and the power of the Spirit that has given them life, that is sent out from this Lamb. Again, getting at what we said in terms of the church, how we are sanctified, how we are set apart and made alive. And so in conclusion then, how do we know then that as Christ is in heaven, as we're on this earth, we have these things transpiring in heaven, how do we know there's a connection between heaven and earth. How do we know that it's not just a heavenly thing going on and we're here kind of muddling through it? Well, the reality is we are those who move in Christ. What is being seen in heaven with the scroll being opened is a plan of God unraveling in history. And this is the important point of John weeping. We, we can't minimize it. If the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, cannot open the scroll, we should just go home. 
There, there's no point in worshiping God. There, there's no point in calling ourselves Christians. No point in living for him. He's a weak God. He's not able to carry out his redemptive plan. That's why John's weeping. His life is a fraud. His Christ is a fraud. So, so you can understand the turmoil. You can also understand the harsh rebuke uh, of the angel saying, stop crying. Why are you crying? Your Lord has conquered. And this is the assurance. And it's not intended to belittle us. It's not intended uh, to make us feel small. It's intended for us to snap out of it and to say, wait a minute. Who is my God? My God is the one who has come as a meek little lamb and sacrificed himself, taking away my sins. But I see the mighty horns. I see the symbolism of this lamb also being of the tribe of Judah and understanding that I am secured and redeemed in this Christ. But the angels of heaven and my praises converge together as we praise the same God. So it's not just my life here and now in this church, in this time in history, but it's understanding that Christ has redeemed the people throughout history, throughout the nations, throughout the world. And I'm part of it. I'm part of the bigger picture, not only in Christ, but seeing myself as climbing Mount Zion. Because Christ has overcome. And knowing that when we're called to worship, we're called before Mount Zion. Seeing ourselves as joining together with the angels in heaven, singing praises to our God. And so it's not a problem with Christ. It's not a problem with the Spirit. Again, it's a problem potentially with our perspective of not seeing the beauty of who we are, of being quick to weep without seeing the celebration and the power. Let us see then the joy that we are called as saints of the Most High. We have been redeemed as a kingdom of priests. We are called as individuals to share in the blessings of Christ. So they are not just your blessings or the church's blessings, but they are my blessings. And they are mine as they take hold of my Lord by faith. Embrace your Christ and see the beauty of singing praises with the angels of heaven, praising the true and living God. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.